0: Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, Ann and Lewis, along with special guest Caitlin Kasnick, Senior Vice President at KCSA, are speaking with Dr. Jonathan Rothbard, CEO, Chief Scientific Officer, and co-founder of Catexco Pharmaceuticals, a medical cannabis biopharma company based in Palo Alto, California. He works in the neurology department at Stanford University, where he's also worked in the departments of chemistry and rheumatology. Dr. Rothbard is also the founder of Amelin, which was eventually sold to Bristol-Myers Squibb. Dr. Rothbard is spearheading the second generation of medical cannabis, where cannabinoids like CBD and THC will be synthesized in labs instead of extracted from plants grown on farms. His mission is to put CBD through clinical trials to prove scientifically that it can be an effective medical treatment in conjunction with other compounds and to patent those compounds and submit them to the FDA for approval as pharmaceuticals. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now, on to our interview with Dr. Jonathan Rothbard.
1: Hey, Anne. Hey, Louie. Oh, my God, that was way too peppy for both of us. Can we do that again? Nah, just let it roll. Who cares?
2: Hi, Louis.
1: Hi, Anne. So, um, I'm
2: super excited.
1: Why are you so super excited? Can you tell because
2: me? We, because we have Caitlin with us. Hey guys. And Caitlin is one of my top favorite, most ever people at KCSA. I love you.
1: Well, <laughs> I, I, I tolerate Caitlin, and, and I love you too. I, oh, I love everybody. You're both my little jars of joy. <laughs> so Caitlin is Caitlin Kaznick, um, and she helps manage our healthcare practice. And today we are going to be talking with Dr. Jonathan Rothbard, who is the CEO of Catexco, which is a medical marijuana 2.0 company. Um, and Caitlin, why else are you going to be on the podcast today?
3: Why else am I going to? I don't understand that question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, did you not prep a, her,
1: Lewis? <laughs> I did prep her for this because she is she and Todd Fromer, who is one of the partners here at KCSA, are going to be launching our second podcast, which is a healthcare-related podcast. So this is Caitlin's.
3: What? It's very exciting. It's
1: very exciting. Um, we are developing a whole suite of podcasts for our company, um, and and we are. We're going to ease Caitlin into the experience of podcasting. So, are you excited about doing your first show?
3: I'm so excited. I'm slowly. I'm slowly going to learn. Slowly but surely, as they say.
1: Uh, You're pretty quick. I think you'll pick this up (laughs) fast. So, and you live in California, which is the the state that has the single most robust medical cannabis industry what do you think of the the industry from a medical perspective versus an adult use perspective? And no, I am not putting you on. Yes, I am. I am putting you on the spot.
2: I mean, it's hard for me to say because to me it's, they're so merged. So, um, you know, the, the clinic that used to be just a, a straight up medical clinic is now both. So there's, I, there's no way when I walk into a clinic, I can tell who's there getting their medicine or who's there, um, for social use. So, um, which is, which is kind of interesting, I think. And, and I think it kind of probably helps people to, you know, to be confident when they're, when they're walking in, if they do need something for, for medicinal use, they don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, maybe that's just getting too much into the psychology of it, but I, I don't know. I really don't see a difference, which is probably really naive, but in my own personal experience, I'm not seeing it.
1: I I think it's interesting, too, because, you know, when you think about medicine, you think about, you know, going to a pharmacy and having something prescribed to you. Caitlin, your job with Kotexco is to to pitch stories on them to the media. Can you know how does the media think about medical cannabis versus just adult use cannabis?
3: The, the thing about pitching Cotexco to media is that it really is just another pharma company. They have the same regulations they have to follow, the same FDA process, the same research that's going behind it. So in a lot of ways, it's very much like pitching any other pharma biotech company. It just has cannabis. And I think today more and more people are legitimizing medical cannabis and understanding that this is a real thing. It's not going away. It's not a fad. And that's kind of where we are today. Can I just... Oh, can I just amend what
2: I said too? Um, is because I don't want it to seem glib, or I don't want it to seem like the medical market isn't taken seriously. I live in in the city of Los Angeles, where you literally cannot swing a dead cat and not hit a dispensary. So, <laughs> I it, it's very how
1: often are to you me. swinging dead and, cats? By the way,
2: <laughs> you don't know what I do on my personal time. Um, ha- but, <laughs> hashtag cat
1: swinger.
3: <laughs> uh,
2: well, yeah. Have fun, Shay.
3: Um, but, you know,
2: I think for people who live in places where it's not accessible, um, it, it, that is a real problem in this state. So I certainly didn't mean to minimize that and, and you know, be glib about it. But um, because there are, you know, people in, you know, the Central Valley and in, you know, northern parts of the states where they're just, it's not accessible to them and they, you know, they need to go through through hoops to, to get their medicine. So I just wanted to say that
3: I, I also think it's about expanding access to care. I mean, the more and more that that medical cannabis is mainstreamed, then it's to, to, you know, to touch on your And we're expanding access to care to, you know, hundreds of thousands of patients, you know, all over the country and world. And that's what this is all about. And that's what, you know, Dr. Rothbard and his team is all about. Well, I
1: think that that actually is a really good place for us to pivot and bring on Dr. Rothbard. So now on our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Rothbard, CEO of Catexco. Dr. Rothbard, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time.
4: It's no problem. Don't worry.
1: So, you know, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and and what your your mission is in the world of of
4: medical cannabis? Well, I'm a PhD in chemistry who was always interested in biology, but at my age, um, the biologists were purely descriptive when I was in school, and the chemists um, were, had these fascinating structures that they were able to construct and manipulate, and then I did move into biochemistry and moved in subsequently into immunology and microbiology and and uh, it made a great deal of sense of the pathway i was following because I, i would reduce problems to the chemical level because chemistry is the foundation of chemistry is uh purification and identification of compounds and then of course uh the synthesis of compounds but it's all related to structural integrity and purity and that level of rigor was a wonderful foundation for my research into the biological sciences. So, in the case of a mission, we don't, I don't, as an individual, don't think of a mission statement, but there's nothing wrong with the concept. I am certainly motivated to translate my research into uh productive products to make society a little better place. So it's a pretty easy uh, idea shared by, I'm sure, many other people in the scientific fields. I have been fortunate to work on problems that could be translated and, and have had the pleasure of working both in academe and in, in, and in biotech.
3: That's great. Dr. Rothbard, can you tell us a little bit about your history in drug development and discovery in general?
4: Well, as I said, uh, I have a great story, which uh, I love sharing with people. When I was in high school, I worked in a natural products laboratory at Columbia University with a fantastic professor from Japan named Koji Nakanishi. And he was very generous, allowing me to work in his lab, and, and you can imagine I was a gopher for the graduate students and the postdocs. But one of the projects in his lab was to identify the sex hormone of the American cockroach, and they were... <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> Sorry, let let that settle for a minute.
1: <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second. How does that relate to cannabis? Because do, cockro- do cockroaches get high and then have sex? Uh,
4: pile around 20 huge cockroaches. These things were like two inches long. Into an extractor. And it was a fabulous device. It would um, fill up and drain and fill up and drain. <clears throat> so the solvent would drain away. So it would be repeated washing of the of the cockroaches. Because, as you can imagine, the sex hormone was on the exterior tail of a cockroach. And then they would separate, they'd dry off the solvent, you know throughout the cockroaches, dry off the solvent, and then separate it in using chromatography. And you'd have peaks coming out uh, based on differential adhesion to the column. And then they had a cage of cockroaches of which they would then <clears throat> assay, the contents of each tube in the separation process by simply dipping a glass rod in and putting it above this cage of cockroaches. And only in the correct tube, the cockroaches went absolutely nuts, right? So this was just natural products, like isolating material out of cannabis. god forbid you got any of this correct this sex hormone on your clothes and you go home
2: oh, and in new york city too oh oh my god
1: wait a second though does it only work on cockroaches or oh, does it work on disgusting. people too That's
4: oh. no no just That's showing horrible. you how, uh, some of my background That's-
1: but but wait a second so so does this Sex pheromone also work on people. I mean, is this a whole new
4: line of business? Why they put, they put it in they put it in what was called the uh, cockroach uh, motel where you yes. check in not check out right. So, so it,
1: it, it was- it's like the Hotel California for cockroaches.
4: Absolutely right, and it didn't work on women. I can tell you that. Uh,
1: so can we go back a little bit to to you know the 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 con- you just talked about how you do this with extracting and cannabis. Why cannabis? Why did you decide to, to look at, at this plant and, and these compounds, um, both from an academic and then also from a business perspective?
4: Well, from a business perspective, it's in addition to. We have a company that has a nicotine program as well. But the the logic is we're interested in reducing inflammation. And inflammation is a key component of tens of different diseases. All the autoimmune diseases, uh, cancer, uh, arteriosclerosis, macular degeneracy, uh, a remarkably high percentage of indications that are central to uh, your health have to do with inflammation but as you know inflammation ranges between life-threatening damage to annoying pain because pain is 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 just low-level inflammation so if we were going to truly uh, be a player in this market we felt we needed a range of therapies that match the range of Inflammation. And remarkably, CBD um, is very mild in its ability to treat inflammation of the order of, of ibuprofen or Tylenol, but with none of those si- side reactions of damaging the kidneys, liver, and stomach lining. And It complements very nicely some of our more intense and consequently uh, more expensive programs for a higher level of inflammation. The other point is this low-level effect can be combined with some of the more intense treatments and perhaps reduce the need of the amount necessary if... uh, Uh, And therefore, the cost of some of the more intense treatments of inflammation. So it it has multiple purposes.
2: And uh, hi, this is Anne. So I'm looking to go back um, and, and go dig into your history a little bit more in terms of drug development and discovery and specifically how that, um, you know, transformed into uh, Cotexco Pharmaceuticals, which this probably is the first time we're mentioning that. That's the company that um, that you are the CEO of. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey to this specific company?
4: Absolutely. I've gone in and out of uh, Stanford four or five times because Stanford requires as soon as you get paid by your company, which, of course, is central to our lifestyle, uh, you have to resign from the university because of conflict of interest. And also the investors need someone like me to be full time in the company uh, because any future discoveries could be owned by the company and not have to be shared with Stanford. So there's always reasons for me to leave. And uh, I, have, in the cases in the past, um, I, I had made discoveries with my colleagues that were commercialized. And the first one, we demonstrated that the concept um, wasn't druggable. In other words, we had uh, identified how the immune system distinguished self from non-self. Extraordinarily fundamental and important discovery. And we were trying to use that discovery to leverage therapeutics in type one diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis. And we worked with Merck at that time. And after three years work, we realized that the program was not going to lead to a, a small molecule inhibitor.
1: But is it- is that similar to the, the issues that you have around um, uh, organ transplantation and rejection? Because if it.
4: That's right. That's what this that was an, a similar aspect, but that whole area we were the first to show was not druggable and not going to be commercially um, profitable from the particular small molecule inhibitor pathway. And so I went back to Stanford, worked on something else, which was, um, how to get drugs across various biological barriers that too, uh, we commercialized, raised funds. And, um, sadly, the, this dissolved not because it couldn't work, but because of, um, much more personality conflicts between the board and our, and the scientists and relatively sad uh, state of affairs along those levels and skipping forward to katexco we did a number of things differently Uh, on the financial level we did not involve uh, venture capital but rather raised money through angel funds out of the cannabis community in toronto and um we As scientists, uh, Mark Feldman is a Lasker award winner and Larry Steinman at Stanford with me had enough uh, reputation of being able to uh, carry drugs to the clinic that we were able to raise sufficient funds. And now we're going to go. We're in the process of trying to go public in the next. uh, And
1: and Dr. Feldman helped bring um, Remicade. Anti-TNF. Right, which is which is the basis for Remicade, right? Which is one of the best-selling um, anti arthritis drugs on the market.
4: The, he was the first of the family of anti-TNF uh, compounds that uh, represent the highest-grossing drug family in history.
1: And you, your drugs that you've helped bring to to market have sold—is it hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in 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 retail?
4: Billions and Larry Steinman is responsible as a central player in the development of Tysabri, which is a major um, a drug used for multiple sclerosis. So the, between the three of us, we have credibility that we could bypass the venture path. The venture <laughs> path, it, it's a fascinating business. Their model is to give you too much money and gain control as soon as possible, and prevent you from diversifying. Because their diversification and protection of loss of investment is to support 20 companies, but limit each company to only one program. And we deeply resented that. And and consequently, that's why we have a single company with multiple programs for inflammation.
2: So what do your colleagues think about uh, your work uh, touching the, the cannabis plants? Are they, you know, the, the, the people you went to school with, maybe some of your um, your colleagues from your past, um, you know, research career, are they um, uh, calling you up, asking you lots of questions, or are they like, this dude's crazy? Like, wh- uh, you know, what what is the academic reaction to this?
4: We're working uh, with both Mark, and Larry, and Raphael Meshulam in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And uh, Raphael is the gentleman who, 20 years ago, first identified THC and CBD. He determined their structures, synthesized them, and with Mark Feldman, showed CBD was effective as an anti-inflammatory in animal models of rheumatoid arthritis. So um, my colleagues are just congratulating me with working with these leaders, uh, thought leaders, in the area. Um, And scientists um, recognize um, the importance of natural products, whether it's from tobacco or cannabis or uh, the bark of a willow tree. As I said, there's an entire field of natural product chemistry where people are isolating new and unique structures from nature and trying to determine whether they have medicinal properties. So there's there's nothing but um high regard for our efforts. The only ones who are amused are my my uh nieces and nephews who think that I can it's a, a channel to get free marijuana. That's
1: <laughs> you mean it's not? Oh I'm 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 getting off this podcast. I thought I was gonna get a whole a whole bunch wasn't going to give out free samples,
3: right? <laughs> D- Dr. Rothbard, I, a, a couple questions actually rolled up into one. So, you know, a lot of drugs that are plant-derived are synthesized in the lab now, like aspirin. So it, it, the other part of it is that Catexco is biopharma. It's also cannabis. So there are a lot of different aspects that play into this. So with all of this in mind, and I know that's, that's a mouthful. What do you view as like, you know, the, the future of, of medical cannabis and why is now the actual time to, to be working on it?
4: Well, let me step back a little bit because the cannabis area has no precedent. There's never before been an example where scientists would identify medicinally related material from a natural product, show that it was beneficial in, as I said, animal models of inflammation, and then be denied of further work. And in the case of Raphael Mashulum and Mark Feldman, they had patents 25 years ago of using CBD for inflammation and those patents have run out, they've expired, they're of no value. And when the patent runs out, the knowledge with, that's described in those patents becomes part of the public domain so that anyone can use it.
1: The patent issue is a really interesting one, right? Because as a federal federally um, illegal schedule one drug, cannabis is deemed to have no medicinal value. And on the, the US trademark office and the patent office,
4: you're breaking up a little bit, but uh, let me go into the answer, because uh, that the consequence of the patents running out. Denied Raphael and Mark the commercial opportunity to develop it with because they were unable to get a dime of investment for t- for more than 20 years. And now there's a mad rush of using cannabis for medicinal purposes. And CBD, as I said, is in public domain, and it's being treated like a cosmeceutical, uh, uh, being added to creams, much like retinoic acid was for wrinkle creams or for massage oil, edibles, and it's the Wild West. It also goes back to the absolutely horrible law passed by uh, the Utah Senator that allowed a variety of compounds to be called vitamins. This is Orrin Hatch's uh, legislation. And then bypass the FDA's oversight, which led to a billion dollar industry, most famously the GNC uh, stores, which are selling all sorts of of additives and supplements with no uh, quality control, no oversight by the FDA, uh, repeated exposure that the majority of uh, the component, the highest component in these subjects is cardboard, it, it's, it's uh, a disgrace. And CBD is falling into that strange and, and unregulated world, primarily because of this silly... Uh, labeling of the drug, as you said, by as, as a restricted compound. And uh, we are suffering the consequences of that, and we're simply trying to bypass that by knowing that CBD can be modified to make unique, patentable, orally bioavailable compounds. But also, in so doing, we have to go through the five to ten year FDA approval process. So those efforts are going to take a period of time. Meanwhile, uh, CBD containing materials, whether or not they do or don't, are going to be available in your local drugstore.
2: So lots of drugs um that that we commonly use are, are plant-derived, but they're actually synthesized in a lab. So um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the synthetic version of the molecule that you're using um, and why choose that versus um, deriving it directly from the plant? And if I'm expl- if I'm asking that question in a very ignorant way, let me know that too.
4: <laughs> no, no, it just goes back to what you learn in chemistry. Um, as I was... Trying to lay the foundation for the conversation, my training is uh, in chemistry, where by definition you define the structure of something and then define its purity. And uh, you make great efforts in chemistry to purify things to greater than 95%. And also, of course, it's impossible to attain 100% purity. Just because of our analytical techniques are so good, there's always some small components.
1: Is that why ivory snow is only 99.4%
4: pure? Yeah, well, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. But the point is, um, you have touched on two very important principles. The process of natural product chemistry is to identify biological, medicinally active compounds. And if you have readily available source, it might be uh, cheaper to isolate them and purify them from a natural product, for example, with CBD and hemp. But alternatively, it might be cheaper to uh, synthesize them from smaller chemical compounds uh, and in so doing have greater control over the uh, contamination. Uh, the contaminants of uh, of the final product. So um, it really, every case is, is different. Um, I can bring up examples like uh, Taxol, which is an anti-cancer drug that came from uh, the leaves of a very rare evergreen tree, and it was impossible to get enough material. So the chemists uh, around the world devised clever strategies to synthesize it. But as I said, um, uh, vanilla oil that we all use when we we cook uh, is still isolated in many cases from the vanilla bean. Or coffee is still isolated. Caffeine is isolated uh, from the coffee bean. It depends on whether or not the starting material is readily available. Now, in the case of cannabis, we all know that uh, there are plantations of of, of Uh, of the plant being produced or being uh, set up. And so uh, I'm not sure who's to say what the uh, eventual source of the material is going to be. But at this time, if you're doing something like we're doing, of making an analog that is not necessarily in the plant, then of course it's going to be a wholly synthetic process.
3: How are you going to manage the FDA approval process? I mean, and what's the timeline look like for that? Because I know you know it takes a long time to get a drug to market, and and you know we're right at, right at the beginning here. So, you know, what are your? How does this look?
4: Uh, we're we're working with Ra- uh, Rafael Meshulam in Hebrew University, who's been working on this problem uh, issue for twenty five years. So he already has half a dozen lead compounds that are equally potent as CBD, but not being CBD and patentable. So uh, we're we're screening those, and we believe in the next quarter, we'll have a lead compound. And then the process is a year, roughly, of preclinical testing for toxicology, metabolism, distribution, and excretion. All that is is done in in, uh, commercially available laboratories. We put together a document of the order of several hundred pages having to do with the safety and efficacy of the compound in animal studies, submit that to the FDA. So now we're talking two, three years from now. And then we have to go through a safety human trial called phase one. A secondary trial where we look at dosing and the dose range, which is phase two. And then lastly, a statistically significant demonstration using several thousand people on efficacy in our chosen indication, which we believe will be pain. And, and uh, then after that period of time, which is between five and 10 years from now, we would market the product.
1: Well, most, most biotechs don't actually get that far, right? I mean, they, they'll go through either a preclinical or, you know, the animal trials and then get bought by Merck or Pfizer or Celgene or somebody or
4: Marlboro. What is your goal? Absolutely right. The, but the rules of, of uh, historically large pharma would buy very early in the preclinical stage. Now they're saving their nickels until the small companies show efficacy in humans so that's much later phase two uh, is roughly phase two phase three is when the the purchases occur and this is
1: it's not a cheap process right i mean getting from phase getting into phase one has got to cost millions how are you doing on the fundraising side i mean what's the goals you know, if you're not, if your if your exit isn't immediate and it's down the line, and and you guys believe that you have a potential blockbuster, and and I can't imagine you would be doing this if you didn't. How are you going to fund Phase One, Phase Two?
4: We are in the process of of going public, and we'll be trading on a uh, a public marketplace, either Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange. But up until then, we do private raise. Uh, which is of the order of forty and fifty million dollars. So we've been successful of raising the tens of millions of dollars, um, but you're absolutely right. For us to move multiple programs in the clinic, um, we we um, need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. But we think this is possible, and we've done it in the past. Yeah. In, as I said, Mark Feldman used uh, using Remicade as an example. Um, the dams will of funding uh, will be opened as soon as we get a product in the clinic um, and and show efficacy. Because then, uh, large pharma has reduced their research programs and now can be viewed much more as sales and marketing right, of of drugs, and so they are desperate for new opportunities.
2: Dr. Rothbard, can you talk about, uh, you know, how the U.S. is essentially missing out on um, a-, a commercial opportunity here with medical cannabis? Um, you know, you talked about. You know, most of the lab work, if not all of the lab work, for Cotexco is being um, done in Israel, um, and we know that that Canada is doing a, a better job on capitalizing, um, you know, on the the cannabis market as whole. As a whole, w- what are those challenges, and how can we change it?
4: The Trump administration. I will not waste any of our time on the <laughs> foolishness of the Trump administration. But the leader of the the Justice Department has been a collection of people who have completely distracted from important issues. But Canada, to their credit, has recognized that to link cannabis with truly addictive drugs is a mistake. And the safety of cannabis has has been shown over centuries. Uh, And so responsible... Um, recreational use and medicinal use of the plant and the isolated compounds represents a a multi-billion dollar industry, which Canada is doing a great job of progressing. And America is missing out. And it's pretty simple. Uh, America is not going to approve uh, a national policy until there's a new administration in Washington. And even then, I'm not sure where on the priority list it will fall, but in those uh, duration, the companies that are Canadian based are doing a fantastic job, and their stock is soaring. Their profits are are reflected in their in their stock price, and uh, they're doing magnificently well. And it's a shame that America is clearly going to miss out on this. Now. We all know the larger the companies, the more multinational they are. So there'll be companies purchased in the future so that some of the very large American cigarette companies will be part of this, and some of the large pharmaceutical companies will be part of the medicinal side.
3: We are talking with Dr. Jonathan Rothbard, CEO of Catexco Pharma. Dr. Rothbard, Tell us a little bit about how the criminalization of cannabis has impacted medical research in the country.
4: Well, it's pretty simple. <clears throat> uh, no one had access to either the plant or any of the natural components of the plant in the United States. And consequently, nothing was pursued, not their, uh, their definition of their medicinal activity or pharmaceutical uh, uh, benefit. Nothing was uh, analyzed on how they bound the receptors. Nothing was seen on how the receptors transmitted the signals both within the brain and and systemically in the immune system. So it basically shut the door on knowledge. It was an uh, extremely uh, sad situation When when viewed retrospectively. Here's a a perfectly sensible plant, no better no and perhaps um, <clears throat> without the uh, problems of tobacco and yet tobacco was researched um, uh, through this period without any limitations so it was it was a- extraordinarily illogical c b d
1: is everywhere has, you know it's it's at every it's in c v s it's in in walmart it's in Costco. And people are ascribing these insane, miraculous, you know, properties to it. Can you take a moment and just what what is the real medicine here? I mean, I know you talked about it from an anti-inflammatory perspective, but people are talking about it like you take CBD and it will cure you of cancer.
4: Yeah, that's a bit silly. Uh, As I alluded to. One of the most important issues is that CBD is not a particularly strong stimulant. And therefore, its use in lotions, creams, massage oils, whatever silly use, is safe. So um, not only are many of these products not contain CBD, and if it does, it's not pure, The most important thing: we're not dealing with something that is uh, sufficiently potent that could cause harm. So that's why I'm pretty calm about the wild west of the uses of and applications of CBD. Um, As you said, uh, people's uh, opinion of it. All that's what what I'm viewing is what's happening at the moment is a huge human experience showing that it's eminently safe. Not that it's, we can uh, conclude whatsoever that it's effective other than anecdotal evidence. And again, we it's coming back to the importance of a regulatory agency. A regulatory agency forces any manufacturer to do a controlled study of treating patients with your interesting drug compared to either no drug or the drugs that are used to treat that disease. And if it's not effective, it's not approved. Um, so that's not being done. So, all, But all I can say <clears throat> is, as I said, my colleagues Raphael Mashulum and Mark Feldman showed in the late 90s and the early 2000s that purified CBD was effective on in both inflammation and pain, and consequently an analgesic in uh, animal studies. And most importantly, large pharmaceutical companies developed small molecules that were selectively were selective for CB2, which is the receptor known to be on the immune system involved in inflammation. And these compounds worked, but were not pursued because in large farmers' ideas, it wasn't sufficiently potent to treat severe pain. It was a mild analgesic equivalent to uh, Tylenol and Ibuprofen. So we're talking about if it's pure and at a, a modest dose, you're having mild reduction of inflammation. Now, as to mood changes, uh, they're possible because there are receptors in the brain to which CBD binds. But it's not psychotropic the way uh, THC is. And that's why uh, I'm quite calm about its use in the marketplace, except that we're susceptible to these exaggerations, as you were mentioning.
3: There are so many people out there who say there's not enough sufficient research. This you know, they just there's all kinds of excuses for why we should not get into medical cannabis. What's your response to all of these critics and you know, what can we say to, to change their mind, if if anything?
4: Well, the good news is at least in California where I live, uh, medical cannabis is approved. In all of Canada, medical cannabis is approved. Um, we I will just bring you to that point that every day, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are self-administering uh, cannabis or purified compounds from cannabis. Um, and we're not reading large numbers of people going to the emergency room, we're not seeing people dying of overdose, so. But is it really medicine without without Everybody's uh, exaggeration that somehow this is dangerous.
1: But would you, would you call it medicine without the clinical studies, without dosing, without drug interaction data? I mean, I I believe in the medical properties of the plant, but it's really hard to call it medicine without knowing, like, I can take it with an MAOI inhibitor, or, you know, I don't, I don't know what I can, you know, what the interactions are.
4: You're exactly right, which is why uh, our company is is using uh, developing compounds that will go through an FDA approval, which will provide that detailed information. But as I come back to There's nothing I can do about the silliness that happened of the rate of the uh, illegality of the plant and its components. I can just witness the process in our society and know that CBD is not presenting a problem uh, in contrast to the opioid issue.
3: How do you position Catexco to investors when you're describing what you guys do?
4: We are, as I sang, we, we, uh, I'm, I'm putting together presentations for fundraising at this moment, and we are pointing out to people about how inflammation is fundamental to a, a spectrum of diseases. The range of inflammation can go from extraordinarily uh, high to relatively uh, a distraction of an itch or pain. And we're trying to say we're, we're moving on um, several programs um, of which cannabis and uh, cannabinoids are only one of our programs that are involved in uh, reducing inflammation. So that's how we're trying to pitch Catexco.
1: Is Big Pharma worried about the real impact of cannabis on their bottom lines or
4: are they sanguine? Um, I wouldn't call it either. I think they're more agnostic. What I found fascinating, as I alluded to, each of the large pharmaceutical companies had a program over the past 10 years looking at the principal receptor in inflammation, CB2, um, and they developed small molecules specific for that receptor, and no one has moved on and primarily because I was alluding to large pharma has this relatively high bar of develop of, of for choosing to develop a compound and the CB2 um, stimulants didn't uh, achieve that bar.
1: The endocannabinoid system is, you know, it is inherent in who we are as human beings, but it is not widely recognized or taught in medical schools. Does that, impact on the ability for companies like Catexco or, or others to find researchers who will actually do the research or is it just like okay I'll I'll study whatever you put in front of me
4: no I think that the the just the fact that we're talking about the uh, cannabinoids uh, has raised their profile that I'm sure that the uh, medical school, student program will be uh, involved in this. But again, what's fascinating is comparing the safety of cannabis with the pain relievers in the opioid family and the disgraceful behavior of the uh, companies that distributed the opioids that led to this massive emergency of uh, opioid addiction. I'm sure the, med- the the medical schools are concentrating more on opioids than they are on, on cannabis. It you was know, just coming back to how safe cannabis is um, is is part of its its allure.
2: If you can uh, step into your crystal ball and um, imagine a time after federal legalization be that, D or rescheduling, uh, what does day two look like for you and for the company? Is that um, kind of the the gold rush where, you know, all of a sudden it opens up a lot of doors for for you for from a financial standpoint so banks can finally invest or, you know, uh, just walk me through what you think day two looks like or week two or month two.
4: Well, the I should clarify as soon as we put a single carbon on the C B two that is not there naturally on rather on C B D that's not in the plant. It's a new chemical entity that then can be patented and more importantly does not fall under the United States federal restriction on cannabis or any of its natural compounds. So we are circumventing that issue entirely by using non comp by generating compounds that are not expressed in the plant. Not only are we not working with the plant, we're not working with any of the compounds that the plant produces. So we fall outside of that entirely. So we're moving ahead without any concern of legality.
2: So is there, uh, other. Is there a reason why Israel is your home base? Is it the, uh Dr. Machulam is there and, um, you know, it, it, Tel Aviv is just more ready for this? Or, you know, why isn't the research being done in the U.S.?
4: Well, you're absolutely right. Um, first of all, regardless of Americans administration at the moment, uh, the world is a global environment. And we're working with people in Germany, England, Canada, United States, and Israel. And whatever, and whoever has the skills, the experience, and consequently can be most productive in both a matter of, of a timeline as well as, as a fulfilling an obligation, we work with. And Raphael, as I said, worked with this for 25 years, and so it's a it's, it's without a doubt uh, a pleasure and and wise business strategy to work with an expert that he happens to be in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv is uh, just happenstance. The other point is the Israelis have an entire institute at Hebrew University concentrating on cannabis. They have twenty-five faculty members who are working on cannabis. They are in, in an intense collaborative environment than anywhere in the world. Does it make you jealous? No, because we can work with them. <laughs> okay, we've
1: taken a lot of your time and we really appreciate it, but we have one more question which we we, we like to ask all of our guests. If you woke up in the morning and you opened up the San Francisco Chronicle or the San Francisco Business Journal or some newspaper or trade publication that's really important to you, and they wrote a story about – Cannabis. What is the story that is being undertold about the 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 cannabis industry or cannabis as a as a, 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 a progenitor of, of valuable drug compounds? What is the most underreported story, in your opinion, about this industry?
4: Uh, Raphael Mishulam's work in the nineteen nineties. In other words, scientists were working and discovering the, the structure, the composition, and the medicinal attributes of cannabis in the nineties and, and for 20 years, there's been a vacuum. And so, so many people think that history started in 2018. It didn't, it started in in, in the 1990s.
1: No, it started in 1970, the year that I was born. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Rothbard, thank you so much for um, spending this time with us, we really appreciate it. Um, and when either you guys list publicly or we have a drug to discuss, let's have you back because this was really fascinating.
4: Oh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I hope that uh, this was productive and and uh, beneficial for your audience. It,
1: I'm sure it was. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Have a good You
4: too.
2: Thanks, Dr. Rothbard.
4: Oh, Always fun, Caitlin.
2: Yay. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Our thanks to Dr. Jonathan Rothbard, CEO and co-founder of Catexco Pharmaceuticals. You can find out more about the company at katexcopharma.com. That's K-A-T-E-X-C-O-P-H-A-R-M-A.com. To chat with us, you can email us at greenrush at kcsa.com or find us on Twitter at the underscore green rush and check us out on Instagram with the handle at the green rush underscore podcast. One take Shay. One take.